Good morning. How is everybody this morning? Peachy, good. All right. Well, let's go ahead and pray together. Let's pray. Dear Father, I thank you for your many mercies upon us. Thank you for the mercies that you've given us, even as much as we mourn the wickedness of our country, we thank you for the good things and the freedoms that you've given it, given uh, us through it. And we thank you for the celebration of that this week. I pray that everybody would have a good holiday and uh, an uplifting time with their family and friends tomorrow. Pray for all of us as we are in the middle of summer, that we would uh, be settled in, that we would be sanctified, that you would bless our vacations and the various odd things that we're doing or things that are out of our normal routines. Please bless the Mensels as they go on vacation this week. Uh, bless the Duns and the other families that are not with us this morning. And thank you for your many mercies. I do pray that you would uh, bless the words of my mouth and the thoughts of everyone this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So there's this game that I like to play with myself. I don't really do it anymore, but I used to do it a lot when I was a bachelor. And the game is, it's just between me and myself and I. I think I've talked to some of you about this before, but I don't think I've ever talked about it up here before. The game is, is just a game for me, and you, you can play this yourself if you want, but my version is called Past Nathan versus Future Nathan. And the way that it works is, especially back in my bachelor days, I'd be like, it's one o'clock in the morning. I'd really like to go and get some Taco Bell, as one does at one o'clock in the morning. I think, you know, if I do that, I'm not going to be very happy with myself next or tomorrow. I'm going to be in the bathroom and stuff. It's not going to be good. Future Nathan is going to be mad that I got Taco Bell tonight. And then I'd say, well, I don't care about future, Nathan. <laughs> I'm, I'm the one that's going to enjoy the Taco Bell. And I'd go and I'd get the Taco Bell and I'd eat it. And then the next morning, I'd be like, ugh, past Nathan. What have you done to me? I feel terrible. Why? So that's one example of this game. Another example, you know, you come across a sink full of dirty dishes and you say, ah, past Nathan or future Nathan could take care of those dirty dishes. And then a couple hours later, you come back and you say, ah, past Nathan, he's always one step ahead. Our little chess game continues. We all are in dialogue with our past and future selves all the time. We're setting ourselves up in the future for success or for failure. We're looking back on the past and realizing that we set ourselves up for success or for failure. We're seeing the things, I'm sure, to be negative about it for a second, I'm sure we could all, everyone who's over the age, let's say of 20, maybe a lot younger, could look back and say, well, these are the things that I stole from myself. These are the opportunities that I don't have. These are the ways I did not set myself up for success. The things that I took from myself, you know. I got bad grades then. Now, I stole a job opportunity for myself. I listened to loud music then. Now I stole a little hearing from myself. I 
went into debt then. I, I stole a job opportunity or a, uh, you know, a lifestyle opportunity. Now, I did not memorize my Bible when I was young and my brain was all spongy and absorbent. And now I don't have the Bible as well as I'd like. And I'd like to give people wisdom and I'd like to help my kids and stuff, but it's not there because I didn't set myself up for success. I ate food now. I'm unhealthy later. I looked at pornography back in the day, and it's, it's affected my relationship with my spouse. I have all these other images in my head. There's all these things we do where we steal from the future. We're like, uh, we're like time pirates traveling into the future and plundering it for fun and profit. Only the twist in the time pirate movie is we were really only ever stealing from ourselves. Another way of saying all this, of course, is you reap what you sow. You reap what you sow. Actions have consequences. And somehow we always forget that. And really, I think if there's one thing we could kind of boil self-help summer down to as we go through the Proverbs and everything and look at them for various wisdom in our lives, it's you reap what you sow. If we could just get that into our heads somehow, our lives would be a lot more glorifying to God and just a lot more enjoyable. And I think that's especially true of sexuality. And I think it's especially true of the thing we're actually going to talk about today, which is work. It turns out that work is just one of those things that if you do it, if you give yourself to it, it has certain consequences. And if you don't, it has certain consequences. And it's very predictable. And it's, it's interesting because going through the Proverbs about work, you know, you think, ah, Solomon, he's going to have all this wisdom and all these interesting angles on, on work. But it really kind of, well, let me just actually take us through all the sort of main Proverbs. We'll just go real quickly about work. And we'll see if we can draw out a theme. So let's start with Proverbs 6. We had a sermon on this last summer, but you can't do a sermon about work in Proverbs without doing Proverbs 6. It's like the classic Bible passage on work, maybe. So Proverbs 6, verse 6. Go to the ant, O sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief officer or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. Let's do Proverbs 12, 11. Whoever works his land will have plenty of bread, but he who follows worthless pursuits lacks sense. Proverbs 12, 24. The hand of the diligent will rule while the slothful will be put to forced labor. Proverbs 13.4. The soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing, while the soul of the diligent is richly supplied. Proverbs 14.23. In all toil there is profit, but mere talk tends only to poverty. Proverbs 18.9. Whoever is slack in his work is a brother to him who destroys. So you look at all those verses, and obviously the whole book of Proverbs you could apply to work. There's all kinds of wisdom. But when it talks explicitly about work, kind of just has one thing to say. It really just kind of has one thing to say. And I came up with, if you'll indulge me, an awesome catchphrase 
that I have a feeling is going to sweep through this church and maybe change Evansville, if not the world. And it's a way to encapsulate what Proverbs says. And it's, it's a little rhyme. So it goes like this. If you slack, you lack. If you sweat, you get. So, you wanna, so let's, let's do it together. If you slack... If you sweat, oh, that's, that's beautiful. Let's do it one more time. If you slack, if you sweat, that's all that Solomon wants to say is if you don't work, poverty will come upon you. Things will be bad for you. You will not have what you need. You will not have what you want. If you do work, you will have abundantly what you need and what you want. And why does he keep coming back to it? Is it because his son that he's talking to is really lazy? Why am I emphasizing it? Why why, is it surprising to us that those are the main verses? Like, is that what our church actually needs? Do you think of yourself as lazy? Did you feel represented, if I can be so bold, when Ben prayed a prayer of confession and said earlier on, dear Lord, we're lazy. Were you like, yeah, I... I, I'm lazy. Or were you like, ah, why are you throwing me under the bus, Ben? Uh, are we lazy? Are we lazy? I think in many ways, no, actually. And what I mean by that is we're all kind of hardworking, Midwestern kind of folk. We work hard. We provide for our family. You know, you could imagine somebody preaching this sermon and they have a church full of bums who just go get drunk, who don't provide for their families, who really just need to be told, you need to get a job. And maybe there's a couple people like that in our congregation, but mostly if somebody looked at us, I don't think they would say lazy, right? So how is this passage for us? Why did King Solomon in all his wisdom feel the need to reiterate again and again and again, don't be a sluggard? Even to godly people who, who wouldn't, we, you know, you wouldn't just say, oh yeah, Bart Conrad, that sluggard. You, I don't think. Well, it's because laziness is a little bit like glitter. You can get it off of you and get it off of you and get rid of it. And you'll still find a little bit of laziness, just a little bit. And, and so where are we all lazy? Why did everybody actually say, yeah, Ben is right to confess this when Pastor Ben prayed the prayer of confession. Well, we are lazy at our work, work, the job that we get a paycheck for. I mean, does anybody really have a completely clean conscience when you think about your job? Like you've never milked the clock. You've never gone down. If you work on your computer, you've never gone down a YouTube rabbit hole. You've always kept your thoughts 100% focused. You've never extended a conversation at the water cooler with an employee, with a fellow employee past the point that it really needs to go because you don't feel like going back to your cubicle. You've never stood up, you know, if you work outside and wiped off your brow and then taken a few seconds to look at your phone. We're, we're, We're lazy. We have little laziness, even if big picture We work hard. God is holy. And if we're comparing ourselves to the standard of absolute holiness, then I think our conscience is, uh, my conscience isn't 100% clean. Let me speak for myself. But even giving us that a lot of us work hard in our job jobs, what about all the other work 
that God gives us to do. There's so many different spheres of work. And so what are other jobs that everyone has to do that we can sometimes be tempted to be lazy? Well, a big one, an obvious one, is the work of relationships. I mean, it's kind of a classic boomer dad stereotype, the, the, the man who goes to work with his briefcase and works 80 hours and gets home and doesn't have the capacity or the desire to have any relationship with his children. I mean, how many movies have I seen where dad starts out, you know, he's not going to make it to the game or to the musical performance, and then by the end of the movie, he has to repent of that and actually make it. And the reason that they put that in movies is because it's true. There's a, there's a lot of us, even past the boomer generation, that struggle with that sort of thing. I, I bet if I got an honest show of hands from all the dads in the room, they would all probably cop to getting home from work sometimes and just being like, I don't, I don't want to deal with this. I don't want to deal with my family. I don't want to ask my wife how her day was. I don't want to deal with the kids. I just want to veg. I just want to look at my phone. I, in fact, I'd like to do that all evening. I, I, I don't actually want to do the work of relationships. I'm sure many moms are the same way and singles and everybody else that we have here. Um, we don't do the work of relationships. I don't do the work of relationships. Or, uh, you know, I, I, I should spend time with my wife, but I have a game on my phone where I can connect little dots and it's really fun and it does dopamine and stuff. If I talk to my wife, maybe she had a bad day and that won't activate a lot of dopamine. There's a subset of relationships, which is that, uh, another place that we're tempted to be lazy, which is conflict. All of us have to work through things with our spouse, with our children, with our coworkers, with our friends, with our church community. Like, we have disagreements, and sometimes we need to give rebukes, and sometimes we need to talk through things. And how many of us are just awesome at doing that work? And some of it's not because we're lazy, it's because we're afraid, you know, if I talk to that person, we may not be friends. There's that kind of thing, too. There's a lot of factors that go into all this stuff. But sometimes, like, I know in my marriage, a lot of times I'll be like, well, something's obviously wrong with Meredith. She's obviously mad at me. And I do not want to ask her what's up. Because if I ask her what's up, she will tell me. And then we'll have a conversation. And it will go on for a long, long time. And, and I'm not afraid that our relationship is going to splinter. I'm not afraid. You know, we've worked through a million of these things now. We're going to be okay. It's, it's not like, oh no, I can't bear to look at the dragon under the sofa or whatever. No, it's, it's just like, I don't want to do the work. I don't want to do the work. And in the marriage, you kind of have to eventually. But, you know, with friendships, with church relationships, with people that you see at work sometimes, it's like, I just don't want to do the work. Now, here's one that I know, uh, a category of work that I know nobody has a clean conscience about. I suspect maybe somebody's like, I have a clean conscience about this. But spiritual work. I mean, how many times did you read your Bible this week? How focused were you on reading your Bible? How many times did you lead your family in devotions? How, how many times did you pray? And, and, and how much time did you spend? Who feels good about that? I've never felt good about that a day in my life. I mean, if I'm being honest, probably, probably that's hyperbole. That's over the top. But often, I have a guilty conscience about that because I'm just very lazy about that work. And I'm very tempted to be lazy about that work. The second I pick up my Bible, I'm like, oh, I don't want to read this. I already know. I've already read the parables of Jesus. Why do I have to, you know, 
I mean, I don't always think of it that way because you feel pretty nasty if you let yourself just think all the things that you're thinking. But, but I, you know, those are the kinds of things that are kind of percolating in my subconscious at the very least. I, here's one. Here's, here's work that I think a lot of us don't do well. Again, I'll speak for myself. I don't do this work well. The work of rest. The work of rest. Because there's actually a whole category in the Bible of biblical rest. And, and first of all, it's the Sabbath rest. You know, it's uh, taking the day off on Sunday and glorifying God and resting in him. But there's also just enjoyment enjoyment of the world that God made, enjoyment of the family that he's given you, enjoyment. Uh, I don't think this one is going to be on the screen but because uh, it's not a proverb, but Deuteronomy 24.5, this is from the law of Moses, says, when a man is newly married, he shall not go out with the army or be liable for any other public duty. He shall be free at home one year to be happy with his wife whom he has taken. That's not just God lowering himself to the weakness of the Israelites, like, ah, they're going to need a honeymoon. It's him knowing that the best way to build a good society is to build a good marriage, which builds a good family, which builds a good society. And the best way to do that is to give the husband and wife time to enjoy each other. Enjoyment, happiness. It says right there, happy. Happiness is actually part of the mortar that binds together our relationships. And this is not original with me. This is what all the church fathers say about why that command is in there, because it's kind of weird. God is willing to let his army suffer just a little bit in order to build good homes. And the thing that he specifically says about building good homes is be happy with each other. Take a little time and enjoy each other. So that's really important to say because it's easy to listen to a sermon like this one and be like, ah, I just have to work and work and work and work and throw myself at work. And there are ways that we all need to work harder. But we also are commanded to rest. We are commanded to enjoy our families, to enjoy the things that God's given us. We are commanded to rest first in God, but we're also just commanded to rest in each other and the good things that he's given us. And that's really important. And I think the place where we're lazy in our rest, if I can talk about it that way, is we just kind of slip into it. We just kind of veg out. We just kind of, and there's nothing wrong with playing a game on your phone now and again or watching a TV show or something like that if it's not a wicked TV show. But a little bit of order, a little bit of diligence in your rest, a little bit of, I'm going to take some time to enjoy my family this weekend. Instead, I'm, I'm going to make a plan. I'm going to put the work in to have good enjoyment, to have good rest, can go a long way. Can go a long way. So that's the first point I want to make, is that somewhere, it's not the same for all of us, but somewhere, each one of us has a place where we're just tempted to be lazy, whether it's relationally or spiritually, or just we don't want to mop the floor or, or get up in the morning to go to our job or, or whatever it is. The second point I want to make is the point that Solomon makes, which is, see if we can do it. If you slack, you lack. And if you sweat, oh yeah, I love it. There is a connection between working and having. It exists. God wrote it into the universe. And we kind of know that with our job jobs where we go and we get a paycheck. But 
what about all the other kinds of work? I mean, let's, let's go back, we'll pick on the boomer dad stereotype. So, uh, you know, the man who never does the work of relationships with his family, never makes his kids feel enjoyed, never spends time with them. What happens to that man? Poverty comes upon him. And it's not money poverty, it's relational poverty. His kids aren't interested in him. Once You ever hear the song, you know, the cat's in the cradle and the silver spoon? Everybody know that song? When you're coming home, Dad, you don't know when. We'll get together. Uh, yeah. this is the, each verse, the dad's like, you know, there was planes to catch and bills to pay. And he, he doesn't spend time with his son. And then it gets to the end of this dopey song, and the son's like, uh, you know, I don't want to hang out with you, Dad. Basically, and it's supposed to be a, a great moral lesson for us. And it is. It is. Because there's so many people, so many parents that get to be empty nesters and are shocked by the fact that their kids don't want to be around. They didn't do the work, and then they're shocked by the poverty, and they never made the connection that those two things went hand in hand. The work of love, the work of discipline, it pays off down the road, or it doesn't. And obviously, spiritual work, or la- you know, the lack of spiritual work leads to spiritual po- You don't read your Bible. You know, how, I think, again, like, we, it kind of sounds obvious when I say it, But sometimes you'll just be in a spiritual funk. You'll be like, I feel far away from God. What's the problem? What's the problem? You'll rack your brains. And if you're anything like me, it won't even occur to you that you're experiencing spiritual poverty because you didn't do the spiritual work. Like, did I go to church? Did I go to the church program? Did I read my Bible? Did I pray? And then the answer will be no, 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 no. And then, well, gee, I wonder why I'm feeling at such a low point. I wonder why I can't seem to get along with my wife today. I wonder why I feel like I'm under God's discipline. Well, poverty comes upon those who don't do the work. That's the negative side, but there is a positive side too, which is if you do do the work, you do get the reward. And I just want to stop here to say like, in my life, this has been so true. I've seen both sides of this so profoundly. It's why this is like a really important subject for me, because it's like, you know how you learn a lesson, and then it's, it's the lesson that you want to teach everybody. That's kind of how I feel about this one, because I was, I remember making a active choice in seventh grade. I know exactly, I can picture where I was to be lazy. Like, and it wasn't like I sort of made that decision and I couched it in a different form. I actually said, I no longer wish to work at school. I hate homework. I do not want to be a part of this school. I want to have fun with my friends. And I do not think that it will have bad ramifications in my life. I literally was articulate enough and sinful enough to say those words to myself. And then I basically didn't do any work in junior high and high school. Called in sick a lot never did my homework, got really bad grades, had a pretty fun time. And it never occurred to me that it was sin, and it never occurred to me that there would be consequences. I came from a conservative Christian background. I went to a good, solid Christian church, and I just somehow, I never quite know how to explain this, but it just somehow, I thought I got grandfathered in. Like, well, everybody around me works hard. We have a culture of hard work. So, I guess I'm a hard worker too. 
even though I made a conscious decision not to be and despise everyone who works. And then I got, a, I got out of high school. I went and I uh, went to uh, Lafayette and I was working a job, a night shift job as a janitor at Purdue. I would work maybe four hours and then I would go and I would read a book. And, I, and, I, and it never occurred to me that I was sinning. It just it was like, well, I'm, I'm just special enough that I can get my routine done in four hours and then I can read a book. And one day the, the boss comes to me and he's like this guy from the Bronx and he kind of talks like this. And he's like, Nathan, we're going to have to fire you if you uh, don't do your work. Like, uh, it's, it's not acceptable. In fact, here's a you know, final notice. And because of the way Purdue worked, they didn't give me any notices up until, like I never, nobody ever talked to me until, here's your final notice. You're doing a terrible job. <laughs> we really need you to actually do the work that we've hired you for. Uh, and I was shocked. I was so surprised. Like, oh, A, I haven't done the work. B, there's been a bad consequence in my life. C, I'm a lazy sinner. I all my self-justifications for why I never did the work were just lies. And I fell into a deep depression, the deepest depression I've ever been into. I'm sure if I'd went, gone to a doctor, it would have been clinical, although I didn't go to a doctor. But I had anxiety in the pit of my stomach. I couldn't watch a movie without, without getting distracted. I don't know. You know, if you've been there, then you know. Like, the food didn't taste good. There was no enjoyment in life. I was just so sad and so scared that I was going to lose my job. And, you know, I hadn't set myself up with any other skill set. I didn't really have anything to fall back on. It didn't make a lot of sense to move back in with my parents at that point. I just didn't have anything. And I was afraid I was just, I mean, I was afraid of being homeless or something like that. I was really scared and I was really sad. And that went on for a period of months while I mourned my sin. And it was God's discipline in my life. It was God saying, we're just going to be done with this one. Like, th this doesn't get to be a sin that you indulge anymore. Like, you're going to pay for that. And I did. And I remember around, that happened in early summer, and then several months went by, and around November, towards Thanksgiving, actually, my boss came to me and said, actually, Nathan, yeah, I've never seen somebody turn it around before. Anytime we have this, we have this conversation with people all the time, and then they get fired. But you're the only person I've ever known that's turned it around. And he was really excited like, and pleased. And I had been a good witness because I started working hard. And it wasn't because of anything I'd done. I still felt like a loser. But, and I still was in a lot of ways. But, but God worked through. God, God made me repent. And then he worked through that repentance. And the guy said, came and said, you're doing a good job. And then I got a promotion soon after that. And I remember that all happening around Thanksgiving. And it was the sweetest Thanksgiving I'd ever had because I just, I felt God's discipline and then I felt his restoration and they were both pretty extreme. But man, I mean, I didn't do anything particularly like horribly awful in the world. You know, I just kind of blew off high school. Everybody does that, right? But God said, no, there could be very dire consequences in your life for not working and you need to turn it around. And then I began to work and I found the joy of working and the reward of work. And it is sweet. It is really sweet. We're not going to do a whole theology of work today, but if I know the women have been going through Genesis in, in the monthly women's nights, and I'm sure you've talked about God 
made us to work. And that's like, you know, we're supposed to go and fill the earth and subdue it. Uh, we're not working for the weekend. We are, we are here to do work, all of us, all kinds of work. And even though Adam and Eve fell into sin and God cursed their work and made it more difficult, there is still such blessings to be found, not just in the rewards that come from work, but in the work itself. I mean, work is hard. I, I don't want to oversell this, right? I mean, I still have days where I don't want to get out of bed and I, work can be hard and work can be frustrating and relationships at work can be frustrating and everything, you can have, just, nothing can go right. You know, these things still happen, but there is just a lot of joy to be had if you approach your work with diligence and with faith and with cheerfulness. And there's all kinds of ways we could talk about that, but I just want to testify to that personally because that really is the story of my life. And I want it so much, especially for our young people. I just don't want them to be deceived into thinking they can get away with being lazy. And I want them to know the joy that, that comes from work. So point number one, we're all lazy one way or another. Point number two, there really are consequences to it. And there are great good consequences to working hard. Uh, point number three, let me just give some two tips kind of on how to work. Uh, tip number one, work smarter. And that might seem a little weird, especially when you're talking to a young person and then you say, you really need to work hard. Solomon says, you will fall into poverty if you don't work hard. Uh, you know, they will then throw themselves heedlessly at work sometimes, especially young men. Like, yeah, I got to go work and I'm just going to get any job and I'm going to just throw myself, I don't know if you've ever worked with somebody or been the somebody who's like making more of a mess than they're actually, you know, if you work with an enthusiastic kid, maybe is like this, where it's like they're not actually getting anything done because they're not working smart, but they sure are trying hard and you kind of have to appreciate it. Well, God does call us to be zealous in our work, but he also says, consider the ant you sluggard. She, doesn't, she gathers in summer. He doesn't say gather in winter too, right? There is a time, there's a place, as I talked about very briefly earlier, there's godly rest and restoration so that you have energy. There, we need to be smart about the way that we work. And my free piece of advice about that would be find a system that works for you, a small, achievable system where you can break whatever job you need to get done into little component parts and make sure that you're getting those done. For me, it's a little app on my phone with uh, little like checkboxes, things that I check off. It's not the Apple one because I don't like that one. It's a different one. But I put all my work in there. There's nothing that's too... Why are you laughing? There's, there's like... So we said there's work work, and I handle that. But we also said there's relational work and spiritual work. It's all on there. Read your Bible today, Nathan. Check mark. Pray today, Nathan. Check mark. Talk to Meredith about her feelings. Check mark. That's not really an exaggeration at all. <laughs> just, just this week, Meredith got me a very nice present, and Meredith likes to be thanked 14,000 times when she gets me a nice present. I'm more like, thanks. This is great. Let's never talk about it again. But I knew that's how she was. So I was like, I'm going to set a bunch of reminders in my phone to say thank you, honey. 
hey, I just remembered that great present. Thanks. Which, by the way, that was an awesome present. (laughs) But now you could say, wouldn't it be nice if Nathan spontaneously just was just full of so much love for Meredith that he just out of his heart came love and he spoke her love language. He'd learned it so well that he, could, he never had to do any reminders on his phone like a jerk. And you'd be right. But I am a jerk. I am a jerk. I am lazy. I do not think to do it. And the reminder on my phone helps me love Meredith. And the reminder to read my Bible helps me read my Bible. What I actually do with prayer, if you want to know, is I have a reminder to do prayer. And a pastor told me to do this one time, and I've done it ever since. I set a timer. I set a timer, like a five-minute timer, so that when the timer goes off, if I've prayed at least that long, I know that I've prayed for five minutes that day, which is pathetic. Wouldn't it be great if I was spontaneous and so, you know passionate in my love for God that I didn't some days need reminder. And some days I don't, by God's grace. But it's always nice to have like a little system that catches you in the places where you're weak. So so that's one piece of advice about how to get work done, which is work smarter, build. You don't have to be OCD like me and have a little phone where you run your entire life through it. But whatever works for you, Kind of the equal and opposite point now, which is work is messy. Work is messy. All kinds of work. Job, paycheck work, relational work, spiritual work. It's all really messy, and you have to be okay with that. Uh, Proverbs 14.4 says, Where there are no oxen, the manger is clean, but abundant crops come by the strength of the ox. Does everybody get the metaphor? Like you have an ox and it does certain things that make a mess in your manger and you have to clean it out. And that's nobody's favorite part of owning an ox. But if you own an ox, you can plow more crops and have an abundant harvest. I think actually this one hits pretty close to home for a lot of us Midwestern Evansville types. Because I think there's a lot of people myself included, who, you know, we'll do any amount of work as long as we can control all the variables, as long as we can make sure there's, there's no chaos, there's no mess, as long as it's when we want, where we want, with the equipment that we want, with the people that we want, especially at the time that we want. Like, yeah, I'll work real, I'll, I'll put in any amount of work as long as I can control everything about it. And it is true that we should work smarter. I just said it. We should control for variables that, and we should make things as pleasant for ourselves as possible. I'm not arguing against that. Very much the opposite. But we do need to understand that life is chaotic. Life is messy. Things don't exactly go the way that we want them to. There's a certain amount of just mess and frustration that happens when we do work. And if we try to organize our life into, you know, perfection, then we'll hear a knock on the door and we'll open the door and it'll be like, hey, it's me. It's chaos, disorder, entropy. I'm a big part of life. Embrace me, foolish mortal. 
Of course, we mitigate against those stuff, but that, those things. But we have to be, if I can put it this way, we have to be a little zen about the mess. We have to embrace a little mess in our lives. Because if we don't, well, then you'll be the kind of person who gets rid of oxen so you never have to clean up with them and then doesn't have good crop. And, and how does this actually look in our lives? Well, it's the tragedy of why a lot of people don't teach their kids to work. We alluded to it earlier. It's like, oh man, if I, if I get little Beatrice to help me hang those pictures, then they won't get hung and I need to hang them and she's going to spill tacks all over the floor and little Rufus is going to get sawdust everywhere. I, I need to actually get the thing done. There might be a place for just getting the thing done, but there has to be a place for teaching your kids to work, right? It's why we don't do the work of relationships. It's like, yeah, I'm going to work through this thing with my wife, but uh, it's going to make a mess. It's going to make a mess. We're going to say things that we don't mean, and we're going to, like, we're going to be still cleaning this up three weeks out. And, and that's the part that I really don't like. Like, we can handle the thing, whatever the thing is, but I don't want the mess. It's why some bachelors don't get married. It's why some people never have children. It's why some people don't have another child. Not because they can't think of the big stuff. You know, I'm going to, like Jake said a couple weeks ago, you know, bring another human into the world and form their character and leave my stamp on uh, the timeline of history or whatever. Uh, everybody likes to do that, right? That sounds pretty good. But diapers and expense and little things over here, all the mess, the mess, the mess. It's why we don't do the work of the church often. It's like, yeah, I'd like to go to prayer night. I don't mind praying. But do I have to go at, at Scott's house? Like, ah, Scott's kids. And uh, Scott kind of smells bad. And, uh, you know, it's like, there's, there's just like, and, and, and I really need to talk to Scott about the fact that he smells bad. This is a false hypothetical. You know, like, I've been meaning to talk to Scott about the fact that he, he smells uh, but uh, I, I don't want to. So I'm just not going to go to prayer night. It's not because I wouldn't go to prayer night. It's because there's a mess that comes with prayer night. There's a mess that comes with relationships. There's a mess that comes with confessing your sin to your pastors or talking to people, right? It's why we don't grow in so many areas of our life because maturity, entering into maturity and maturing puts you in this place where you're always outside of your comfort zone. You're always trying to be a little bit more than what you are, which means you're going to make some messes, right? Like, I'm going to be try to be a good father today. I listened to Jake's sermon on parenthood. I'm going to try and discipline my kids for the first time. Are you going to get it completely right? No. No, you'll make mistakes. You'll make... Uh, yeah, I have a one-year-old. Theo is one years old. She just learned to walk a couple months ago. Now she falls all the time. She hits her head. She cries. She gets hurt. Guess what? Back when she was crawling, she never got hurt. She never fell. And that's actually how a lot of us are in, in, in bigger ways. Like, it would be ridiculous if Theo was like, I'm just going to crawl for the rest of my life because I don't want to make the mistakes that come with walking and feel the pain that come with walking. But that's how we are sometimes in our parenting, in our relationships, in our work, in our use of words, and all the things that we've been talking about. Like, well, I don't actually want to try, and it's not because I don't have a big picture vision for it, it's because I'm ashamed of the mess that comes with trying to mature. 
I'm ashamed to ever let my ambition outrun my ability. But if your ambition, especially for the things of God, never outruns your ability, never outpaces your ability, then you're never going to grow. You have to be willing to, I'm sorry if it sounds like a cheesy self-help thing, but if you're going to stand, if you're going to walk, you have to be willing to fall. If you're going to fly, you have to be willing to fall from a greater height. So we need to embrace some mess in our lives. We need to be willing to be bad at things. It's a really pathetic thing to just do the things that you're good at. Because what a small list of things that is. If you're going to take any of the wisdom of all the weeks uh, that we've had in self-help summer, if you're going to use words, if you're going to words well, if you're going to parent better, if you're, the other, all the things we've talked about, you have to be willing to fail. Great man said, this is kind of my life motto. I didn't say it. A great man said it. Anything worth doing is worth doing poorly. Anything worth doing is worth doing poorly. It's worth making some mistakes. It's worth falling on your face to try things, especially in godliness. We, we need to be willing, like I said, to let our ambition be a little bit bigger than our ability. Otherwise, we won't grow. Maturation is messy. So let's work hard and let's believe God when he says he will reward it. Now let's pray. Dear Father, I thank you for your mercies upon us. I pray with Ben from earlier that we would not be lazy, but that we would work hard. Thank you for your mercies upon us as a church. Thank you for the ways that everyone here is growing. Pray that you would bless communion now. In Jesus' name, amen.